Hello, everyone. Good morning and welcome to another episode of the Teamwork, A Better Way podcast. I'm Christian Napier, and I am joined, as always, by my illustrious co-host, Spencer Horn, and a special guest. Dan, we'll get to you in just a minute. But Spencer, how are you doing? I am great, Christian. Good to have you back. Missed you last week. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, we had a, a, a little conflict of schedules, and, and I wasn't able to attend, but I'm super happy to be back this week. On a snowy April morning. Is it snowing where you are, Spencer? Yeah, it is. And it was, I woke up getting ready to go for a run and I was thwarted. I usually, the, the snow doesn't stop me, as you know, but because of we're in that transition period, it's just making the, the trails all muddy. And so, heck with that. I, I had to, I was hoping I could do it maybe later this afternoon if it dried out. Well, I hope you get around to it. And speaking of running, I'm super excited to introduce our guest here. Uh, because he's putting on a, a fantastic event coming up in, in June here locally. And we'll talk a lot more about this, Dan, but let me introduce Dan to everybody here. So Dan is one of the world's foremost authorities on major sport events, uh, the world's largest events, tons of experience with Olympic Games, FIFA World Cup, other regional events. Uh, he got his start in Atlanta uh, 1996, uh, helping to manage accommodation for spectators. And we first worked together in the Salt Lake 2002 games where he was in charge of the allocation of athletes to their rooms and athletes and officials in the rooms and spaces in the Olympic Village, in the Paralympic Village. And he's got some great stories about that. We could we could go on. I'm sure he does. <laughs> uh, yeah. But you know what? Since then, he managed Athlete Villages in Torino, in Vancouver, in Sochi, in Rio, in Lima, Peru for the Pan American Games. He's worked as an IOC advisor. He He's a subject matter expert in this area. He's worked on the Qatar, up, the upcoming FIFA World Cup in Qatar. And uh, I mean, he's so many profile, uh, high profile events. And now, uh, over the last few years, Dan's launched his own sport product, which is the Heber Valley Marathon Half, uh, the Valkyrie uh, Multisport Relay, and the Endurance Sports Summit, which will be coming up in June this year. Yep. And we'll talk about that again soon. Uh, Dan's been featured multiple times here on KSL Television, which is the local NBC affiliate that carries the, Olymp the broadcast of the Olympic and Paralympic Games. Also been on PBS and NBC, and so I'm super happy to have him on our humble little podcast. Uh, so Dan, uh, welcome so much. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, we really appreciate you uh, joining us today. I'm really happy to be here, and I'm glad I found out about this um, through a, a LinkedIn post that you guys did. It was nice to connect with you guys right away and and uh, get picked up for this. I'm really happy to talk about it. Thank you so much, and and I'm going to have to do some work, uh, Dan, to 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 maybe even be able to qualify to participate in any of those endurance games. But uh, I, I'm I'm excited to hear about those. But our topic today, we'll talk about that. You'll okay. Get <laughs> the the topic today is super exciting to me, just because this is something that that is uh, that I, I I work with CEOs and executives on a lot and I am I really want to hear your perspective and your story about this idea of being needed less and wanted more tell, tell us where where that came from in your experience well uh, it's funny it's it's something that I only started to articulate as um, as a I guess a, a leadership attribute late later in my career not at the beginning because i i 
I fell into it or I, I discovered it along the way. Um, it began as a hard lesson learned with an organizing committee earlier in my uh, career. I was hired onto an organizing team. I was the only one with prior experience with the technical requirements and experience with the peculiarities of the client and client relationships. But I was, uh, I was naive. I was still young and maybe insecure in my career path. And I was really, I was maybe too eager to make some kind of grand contribution. And I, I, I played my hand of being needed way too hard because of this idea that I was the only one that had done this before. And it, and it wasn't a good look among my management and colleagues. The, the attitude that I conveyed of, I am needed, I am indispensable by my deeds, if not my words, they demonstrated a lack of trust or confidence in others' abilities to back me up. Um, it came off condescending to some people and it created a codependency between others, which is a dependency between unequal relationships. And I think I was milking this, I have experience thing. And the unintended consequence was, was these things. It was dysfunctional in this working relationship with colleagues and company. And, and it was as dysfunctional in the company relationship as it could can be in personal relationships. And I discovered too late um, that this, this need to be needed completely took me out of the headspace to recognize strength in others and how team inter interdependence could be fostered instead of codependence. So uh, that was hard time. That was a really difficult assignment for me. And I had a lot to reflect on. And luckily I, I did. Um, the great thing about being involved in, in events uh, of this kind the pro or any project of this kind that has a beginning and an end is that you can get a do-over. I love the do-over of working for Olympic Games or other major events. If you're lucky enough to have one, it's the best because you get to reflect and apply all these new learnings in another go. So, um, uh, yeah, if, if you don't mind, I'll just continue with the story on how I got there. But um, it was it was during the the Olympic event itself when I was um, had the great fortune to interview for a position for the next Winter Games Village management team, and I I knew that I believed what I was about to say to my hiring vice president who was interviewing me, or at least I hoped it was true, but I don't know where the courage came to say it. I mean, given the chance to expound on some philosophies for team collaboration in that interview, I think most observers would say I just about talked myself out of a job offer. But uh, my, I, I had this chance to talk to my hiring vice president. He did not come from an Olympic operations background, but he came from luxury hospitality. And, and surely this man had seen dozens of talented young professionals tenure under his leadership. I know that he had choices. There's no question he had choices. But I led off with this risky notion. And I told my hiring vice president that he didn't need me. That was practically one of the first things I said. And um, uh, I told him my belief that there are many people who could talk that he could talk to that would do a, a stand up job of it. And that the games he was organizing 
and the service he was organizing would succeed in countless iterations, iterations of, of this hire without me. And I told him I didn't want to be needed, but rather I wanted to be on a team that would carry on just fine, even without me, but that wanted me anyway, because it's better to be wanted than to be needed. Um, don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I did tell him I want the job more than any other job in my adult life. I wanted this one, but I told him I didn't need it at the risk of another dysfunctional relationship with my work again. I didn't want to risk that. So, uh, he offered me the job on the spot. I, I was, when he did, I was quietly tremoring with joy and relief and like nervousness that I might've just avoided a disaster. Um, it was like, but, it, but it felt like maybe like an aerialist going for broke and sticking a landing to win gold. Uh, that's, that's what that felt like saying those things against conventional wisdom and, um, and, and then being offered the job. I, I later found out, um, after I was hired that when my VP was hired for this organizing committee, he learned about all manner of rumors of no confidence in him or in, in his hire and, and murmurings from senior Olympic administrators because he had no Olympic pedigree. I mean, not everyone was saying that, but there were some like naysayers about his hire because he didn't have an Olympic pedigree. And when I learned that, I thought, oh, well, that's no wonder that my interview was disarming because uh, I think he just was wondering what is it about this pedigree that is so needful and so crucial for success. Um, he wasn't building a statue of himself out in front of the org committee. And he told me in that interview, I'm not building one for you either. So you're my guy. That's the attitude I want. Um, I, uh, I, it, but anyway, that, that was, that was for me, um, very formative, a formative experience in, in learning this idea of being needed less and wanted more. Great. So, so great introduction. I uh, love the, the, the story. And I think one of the things that um, really stands out to me is that this is something that is played. I know I'm delayed, so just forgive me. Uh, I, I know this happens all the time with new executives that want to prove themselves that that feel like they have to have all the answers Dan they come to the to this leadership role and they're like I need to I, I need to be that go-to person and prove that I deserve to be here and sometimes that's associated with this imposter syndrome right you know I've got this role and I have to yep. prove myself but the thing that I think that you shared that is so valuable is that you had this do-over and that taught you that you can start fresh my question to you, though, is what you did to disarm that, that hiring manager, how could a manager that, say, is in a role that doesn't have that do-over create that own do-over and create that humility to, to create that reset with their team to re-engender the trust and reduce the condescension and all those things that you said you created? Because I think it can happen, don't you? Yeah. Well, again, to speak to that point about do-over, um, I had... I had another chance for that. Um, uh, my next Winter Games Village role was one of Village's directors. So I was, I was basically topping up 
in my career path in, in terms of village organization as a director with a new organizing committee. And um, now I would, I would really begin to prove that philosophy from the role of leader rather than role player. And I'm glad you brought up imposter syndrome because if you hadn't, I would have. I am a sufferer of that for sure. And I, I honestly think that my inclination to imposter syndrome prepared me to, to really um, prepare the groundwork uh, with this new organized committee and team and to put into, into action this idea of, um, I, I guess, preparing for my redundancy as a leader. And um, when I think about imposter syndrome, I, I just, I've learned to, um, it's kind of a judo move with me, you know, I, I use its momentum to guide it where I want it to go, those kinds of negative feelings. Um, I let it kick my butt, you know, because um, it, it, uh, it's, it's suddenly a, a burst of, of a head full of steam to like get, get some things done that again, prove to myself, oh yeah, I've got this, I can do this. But really this was going to be a huge job. I was in a brand new country, foreign language and um, new context, some of the most imaginative plans for where the villages were going to be and really complex uh, layers of complexity in terms of its operation. Well, um, over time, you know, I, I came on board and over time and with practice, I learned to let go. I was, I was as generous as I could be, uh, given time and language barriers. I trained my immediate reports as functional equals. I voraciously studied the strengths of my team and its individuals. I hired for attitude and team chemistry, and I looked for transferable skill when I was interviewing. And I didn't worry a bit if they hadn't a pedigree ticking all the boxes. That's the team culture I set out to create. And, and I thank my former VP who hired me for mentoring me in the importance of team culture. I, I looked past uh, probably half dozen really qualified housekeeping managers for hire in the role of housekeeping manager for the village. And I picked someone who was a uh, project manager for conventions and, and hospitality gener generally, who had bumped uh, from one desk in one role to another within a, within a hotel. And she just had the right attitude and right work ethic. And she was teachable. She was willing to learn. And that's who I hired. That's part of the culture that I was bringing on my team. And, and importantly, um, I trusted my team because I did the hard work of inducting them well and transferring knowledge and planting intuitive skills and teaching them to get to work with all the reasons I hired them in the first place. In short, I showed them that I really meant it when I said, I want you on my team. And I think that a lot of executives miss that. They hire, they say, we want you, and then they don't demonstrate it. They just go on doing things themselves and not offloading responsibility. If you want me, prove it. Trust me with something. And I, I, I really tried hard to do that. I, I honored my decision to hire them by unburdening myself with things and letting them carry it. That's, that was satisfaction for them. And I, and I told them, I told everyone I hired, it's better to be wanted than to be needed.
Uh, Dan, I, I'm wondering if you can just give our listeners and viewers a sense of the scale here, because you think, oh, it's a village, you're talking about team, and you might be thinking, oh, it's a nice little team, but we're talking about thousands of people that work uh, on a village. These are yeah. not small teams. These are very complex operations. And so for you to actually be willing to hand over the reins and trust your team, you're trusting your team with big responsibilities. This is not just some little, you know, pet project. These are these are these are complex and they are years and years in the making. So I'm wondering if you can just yeah. give our our viewers a sense of the scale and really the the amount of guts it takes for someone like you with experience to say, I'm going to trust people to deliver this really complex operation that is high profile, that could potentially impact the delivery of the games if the athletes are not having a good experience in the village. And so maybe you can just speak to that a little bit. Yeah. Well, first of all, there's no other way to do it effectively. You have to trust others to shoulder some burden. It's just too big to do by yourself. Um, the winter games typically house up to 5,900 people um, in a village system. Sometimes uh, because of the nature of the geography, you have to split the village into or replicate it into two or three villages. Um, summer games houses, you know, close to 18,000 people um, maybe split depending on the host city or the circumstances might be split and replicated into smaller versions. But a village paid staff, you know, operating team for the village function, um, including management and even games time hires, it, it grows to, you know, any, anywhere between 60 to 160 people. Um, but along with that, the volunteers number in the several hundreds. And then you have people from other departments within the organizing committee that fold into the venue team that you're in charge of. And now, and now your numbers increase, you know, with another, another 60 to 160 uh, uh, seconded staff from other departments onto your venue team. When they bring their own volunteers, the, the, the total number of, of uh, organizing committee workforce is numbering in the, in the few thousands and then add contractors on top of that, you're, in the, you're approaching eight to 10,000 people. Um, individual accreditations operating um, on your venue. Uh, the, you know, the, when you think about this is the moment for athletes to perform at their best and, and it, it for most of them, it's, it's their one shot. They don't return to another Olympic games. Um, it's only the ones that medal that, that succeed in meddling that end up returning, you know, over and over again as, as more like a rule. But if you can't deliver, uh, you know, the, the basic services that keep their mind on the, on their game, you know, on their, uh, on their training, on their competition, then you've, you've kind of thwarted their best chance at success. We have to perform. We have to give a world-class performance for them so that they can give a world-class performance for themselves. And that's pressure, but it's a fun kind. <laughs> it really is. It can be a fun kind when you've got a great team together. It is really fun and satisfying to do this. There's nothing better than operating finally after years of planning and getting that immediate feedback from your client that's telling you either, yeah, you're doing great or you've got to step it up. Um, love that. 
you know, that's that I love the payoff for all the hard work and the lessons learned and, and applying them. You know, I talk with CEOs and executives all the time, Dan, who have this idea that they want greater ownership, greater responsibility, greater commitment from their team. Yet they are typically the, the ones that are preventing that commitment because they hold on to too much decision making. Yeah. They hold on to allowing them to, 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 to solve the problems, to, to, as you said, offload more to them. But that's how you prove that they're valuable to the organization and to you yeah. by allowing them not just stuff that you don't want to do but give them those important things. And so how did that go for you when you started doing it? Was it, was it easy? Was it a challenge? Was it a process? T talk about that process. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to give anyone the impression that like this just all came naturally. I mean, it, it was a struggle that I had to get used to is, is letting go of things. It was a process. I moved the needle a little bit all the time, but one of the hardest things I passed through in that leadership experience was truly crossing over into acknowledgement that the project would thrive just as well without me as with me. It was a process of converting to that notion. There was this, there was a moment of instinct. I, I, I wanted to claw back distinct responsibilities just to reassure myself. But I, I learned I was the only one that needed convincing um, that I'm okay. Uh, not them. It was me. I had to convince myself it's going to be okay if I, if I let go, you know, and I trust people, um, my team or, or that I was still wanted, you know, even that, um, my team was, was just as convinced, um, that I was where I should be as I was convinced about them being where they should be. And I had successfully outsourced to my team, everything, but my own understanding um, or understanding of my, uh, uh, for myself, the project. Uh, and, and they knew that they were just as responsible to maintain understanding of the project for me um, as I was responsible to maintain it for myself. And, and I retained the understanding in order to continue to support and coach and endorse and reassure, reassure my team. And in the end, it was, it was the highlight of my career, those games. That was a career highlight for me. Um, it, it wasn't until I had time to reflect on the event um, that I realized the reason I felt so satisfied with that job that I did wasn't because I achieved under such great responsibility and carried so much to prove myself to whoever was watching. No, it was because I shared in such a balanced way the burden and the thrill of doing. And by the time the games were in regular operating mode, I had made myself redundant. And there was no doubt left that I was there foremost because I was wanted, not needed. And I felt the same in return. Oh. <laughs> I keep trying to time that thing. I never time it right. <laughs> it's, it's my fault, Christian. Hey, but I, we do have a comment from uh, someone on LinkedIn, and, and I encourage you, and Christian, so let me interrupt for a moment, then I'll turn it over to you. But 
If you are listening on, on LinkedIn or any other format, you can you can make comments. We'll see them. But Quinn Jones, uh, thank you for, for joining us. Quinn says, why is it so hard to let go? He says in quotations, it's part of being connected to your profession, but letting go allows others to connect when you disconnect. Uh, great comment, Quinn. Thank you for, for, uh, for sharing that. Uh, well, I, yeah, I appreciate that, Quinn, very much. That's a great comment. Uh, I, I, I had a question for you, Dan. Uh, now that you, uh, you had an inflection point in your career when you came to this realization that you needed to, you wanted to be needed less and wanted more. Uh, then you were working for an organizing committee or working for other people. Uh, you were going games to games. Uh, then, you know, serving more as a consultant, but always working for clients. And now you've kind of transitioned in, in some respects into owning one of these events, a, a local event that you're starting out here. I want you to talk about that transition from uh, yeah. being a person who's brought in to deliver something specific to actually kind of taking ownership of the whole thing and leading the entire effort. Yeah, there's still a lot to, um, there's still a lot of building, a lot of construction on this project to go before I find myself in a position to have people to lead. Um, it, it's only in its second year, so there's still a lot of bootstrapping happening, but I've got, I'm, I'm starting to develop a, a, a team of um, specialized volunteers. And it's basically friends and close acquaintances that are donating time, but there's still a long way to go before I've, I've got, you know, a year to year um, operating or, or management team for the event. Uh, I do want to touch on and give an answer to your question because uh, about consulting and traveling abroad, because it, my career did kind of pivot. I, my family circumstances um, wouldn't allow me to relocate anymore. And so I had to I had to become more of a traveling consultant rather than an embedded employee of an organizing committee. But there's there was still a way to apply um, to apply this principle, even as a traveling consultant who drops in every couple of weeks, uh, every three months. Um, I've, I've been successful at it, um, doing the same, um, grooming and fostering a legacy of uh, in-country project leadership. I'm I'm aware that doing that actually risks me narrowing my clientele because after I leave, if I've done my job well, uh, well, Peru isn't going to need me anymore. <laughs> so, so I just got to move to other pastures, but I've found that preparing an event or a service team and preparing myself for my own redundancy is the most complete satisfaction I've ever felt as a leader. And, you know, I, I wish public servants, uh, particularly elected officials and their political parties, would see the same value in doing that. I believe preparing successors and preparing themselves for their successors should be core to the to their objectives because it implies that they achieve them and then make room for another. That is leadership. Just as um, your, um, your uh, person that commented on LinkedIn said, you know, that letting go what I was hearing and what, what he made in his comment, that letting go just creates space for others to find satisfaction in what they're doing. 
And that is, that is leadership satisfaction. Um, that's like, that's, that's legacy. It's true service. If you're an elected official and make room for a successor or you prepare a successor, um, rather than elevating self-preservation as the primary objective. So, you know, as I, as you know, with, with, with some good fortune and luck that the Valkyrie, um, uh, becomes, you know, nicely rooted in with a great community in Wasatch County, um, that, uh, that we'll be able to build, um, a team that stays on board and prepares year after year for this. But I will be, I will be, um, following my own principles as closely as I can. When I have people to hand over responsibility, I'll do it. And so I, I wrote, I wrote down maybe, maybe five points. Um, one, let go, hang your ego at the door and forget about the statue in your likeness that you romanticize about. Okay. Two, start fixating on being a learner in common with everyone around you. And if you do, um, and if you do host, uh, or if you, if you do work on big host city events, acknowledge, acknowledge that no one is an expert on any event that hasn't happened yet. That's important. Um, Study voraciously the strengths of your team and its individuals. Endear yourself to the areas they feel they need work on and that they want to improve. Help them succeed. Number four, honor your decision to hire them. Demonstrate confidence in them early. Trust matures incrementally and naturally when you do that. And finally, five, prepare for your own redundancy. You can outsource doing, but not understanding. You'll still want that so that you can support them. <laughs> I've muted myself. It sounds to me like we need to write a book, Dan. Uh, that's, <laughs> uh, those are five great points. Um, before we let you go, Spencer, do you have any final questions for our honored guest, Dan Merkley? You know, I, Thank you so much, Dan, for coming. I, I didn't necessarily have a, a question, but I, I, I put that out there on LinkedIn when you said this, prepare for your own redundancy, prepare your successors. And I think uh, what happens so often in public service, even in business, is that we're threatened by the rising generation. We, we feel like that somehow by mentoring them, we give away our power or make ourselves no longer needed. And that's a fear that a lot of people use to, to hold on to information, you know, to power, to information, because they think that makes them more needed. And it takes humility to do what you've just done and, and to let go of the fact that you are needed because none of us is indispensable. But when you come to yeah. that knowledge, I think that's very, very powerful. I, um, I think I decided to just lean into it and make it kind of my niche. Um, I, I, I have to fight that instinct. Sure. Uh, I can get, I can get, you know, insecure about it. If I see someone that I feel like is really well matched against my abilities too. And knowing that I might have to compete for work with that person. Sure. It's, I mean, it's natural, but, um, I decided that this, this is where my strength is. This is my niche where I, I mentor and groom and teach, someone to take my place in a certain market. And then I move on and look for someone else to help in the same way. And, and I think the people that have hired me on an ongoing basis or, or where I've had a, a great professional referral 
they know that they know that that's what I do. They know that that's how I contribute uniquely, um, to their project. Dan, I just want to say that's what creates greater sustainability for you, which is what being needed less and wanted more is all about really. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, uh, so if you want to do the race, Spencer, um, go to Valkyrie relay.com V A L K Y R I E relay R E L A Y.com. You can read about that there. We also have a standalone marathon and half marathon that is presented by our community sponsors, the Wasatch community foundation, and even a 5k at our finish line at soldier hollow. That's where our endurance sport summit is. It's a, uh, endurance sport industry expo. It, the finish line is a live site with family attractions and uh, food trucks and even a beer garden. So um, save the date, June 18th. Um, it's the day before Father's Day, and I know that these kinds of nicknames are not self-appointed. So we're trying to rally um, some people to uh, uh, enjoy it as a, as a returning event every year um, on Father's Day weekend and maybe make it the next Utah's uh, Father's Day weekend classic. I think it's fantastic, Dan, and I really appreciate you coming aboard and taking time uh, to join us on the podcast today. Uh, you shared a lot of really important lessons with us and our viewers, and so thank you again. And I wish you all the best of success. We'll definitely be there on Saturday, June 18th uh, to celebrate with you this uh, awesome trifecta of events, the yeah. The marathon, half marathon, the Valkyrie Relay, and the Endurance Sports Summit. So everybody, go check those out uh, at the what was the what was the web address again, Dan? Yeah, it's ValkyrieRelay.com. V A L K Y R I E R E L A Y dot com. All right, ValkyrieRelay.com. Dan, thank you so much, Spencer. It's a pleasure to see you every week, as always, and. Viewers and listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast, and we'll see you again same time next week. Great. Thanks, you guys.